This is the Game Dev Field Guide, bonus episode number two. Today's special guest, Sam Seltzer Johnston. Hey everybody, I hope you're doing well. This bonus episode is sponsored by the patrons. You might be thinking, have I found myself on some kind of backdoor premium content feed, or did Zaccavelli forget to <laughs> lock this content off? The truth is, is that all of the content for the Game Dev Field Guide uh, is for free, it's for everyone, and we just want to thank the patrons for being able to sponsor a third episode every month. So yeah, if you'd like to become a patron and directly support the community and the show, as well as vote on topics uh, for the proper episodes, I will leave a link in the show notes. With that, let's jump over to the first segment of the show. I've been getting a lot of feedback about buff debuff and most of it has been positive so i think we're gonna keep it rolling because i have a lot of fun doing this segment if you're not familiar with buff debuff these are sort of like a quick fire segment where i'm presented with topics i don't write anything down beforehand i kind of just go off the dome with the responses and yeah for that reason uh sometimes i have poor takes uh just because i didn't think it through and i'm just opening my mouth <laughs> talking about it. But it's fun to do and it lets us explore a lot of different topics. So with that, let's get into it. So the first topic is games inside of games or games where there's user created content. This would be things like Roblox. Um, you could do it in Minecraft. You know, Gary's Mod would fall under this sort of category. And I think as a game developer, this is very buffed. One of the first projects I ever had that kind of really gave me a lot of confidence that I was good at game design was I made some Halo 3 custom games that actually kind of made the rounds and got kind of popular. And I would say that was like my first big project, the first project that people outside of my immediate friends and family had played. Before then, I would like, you know, as a kid, I would make like... Uh, games where Legos were the graphics, and then I had like an Excel sheet that did the logic. But yeah, so I guess you could say that I got my start with a game where you made games inside of games, and that would be the Forge mode on Halo 3 and map making and custom games. And I have a lot of love for that space because one, it was super fun to play, and two, I was always blown away by the ingenuity of other people using sort of that limited tool set to make some really mind-blowing stuff. And I think a lot of game developers get their start in games like this. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Sam, our special guest today, I'm pretty sure he has some experience with Gary's Mod. I think I remember that when I was researching him. But, but yeah, pretty much anything where you can practice game design, I think is buffed. And if you want to do that by, you know, literally making games in, in Unity or... Godot or something like that, or if you want to practice your game design by making games within games, I think that method is perfectly valid and a really cool and fun way to start. So games within games is definitely buffed. I wanted to break off a topic of that and talk about it specifically, and that would be Roblox. Roblox for me is also buffed. I've been taking some time to really study and understand Roblox in the last couple months, and 
there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of terminology that um maybe the younger kids use that I'm learning a lot about so it's been kind of like fun to explore this bizarro land <laughs> but I got to say that I'm actually really really impressed by the games I'm playing in Roblox we've all have kind of written off Roblox as like a a thing for kids and you know the demographic I think is still pretty much towards kids but if I'm telling you the truth I've been having a lot of fun playing Roblox and I've like I said I've been finding a lot of really cool and interesting games and really smartly designed game mechanics and if you're a game dev out there and you're looking for kind of a niche audience or you know maybe just something to stand apart i think becoming like a, a specifically a roblox dev would be really cool and really fun and i think i myself i'm going to explore the roblox space and maybe i'll make a game in it it's kind of got this weird thing where roblox devs and indie devs game devs and you know kind of the more traditional game development um they've kind of evolved in their own spaces and in some things they've arrived to the same idea kind of independently which for me i think is how you know those ideas are good like for instance the core game loops of a game you might find in Roblox is very similar to a core game loop you might design in traditional game dev so that tells me right away that core game loops are like an essential part of a game but there's a lot of rules uh, or i guess guidelines in game dev uh kind of more conventional stuff that is totally broken in Roblox and yet some of these games still get millions and uh maybe millions is too high to say but basically they get a lot of players. Roblox is a place where graphics glitches, <laughs> weird physics, um art direction, all the like core concepts you know about that are kind of just totally thrown out the window. And I don't know, it's just really cool to see a space where game development has kind of or Roblox game development has kind of evolved on its own and the ideas are kind of unique. So yeah, for those reasons Roblox is definitely buff. Next we're going to talk about interactive uh or decision-based movie style games. An example of this would be like the game Until Dawn. If you've never played that, it kind of plays out like a horror movie and you kind of jump into key story moments and make decisions. And yeah, it's a really cool idea. It kind of works like a playable movie. For me, this is going to be Is there like a what's halfway between buffed and debuffed? Just normal, I guess. For me, yeah, it, if I really think about it, for me this is just kind of neutral and i know that's <laughs> maybe not a satisfying answer but i invented the segment so i can come up with a third third category called neutral i personally really really like these games um the reason i don't want to say that they are buffed is because i know that most indie devs or the the people that this shows kind of focused for that beginner to intermediate style dev um i don't think it's practical for anyone in that range or really any indie dev to attempt a game like this. The problem with these games is that they rely heavily on a CG and voice acting budget. And those two things are pretty expensive and are going to be really expensive for indie devs. Now, like I said, as games, I I really liked Until Dawn. I thought it was really cool. 
and uh, it's like the perfect game to play to get in the mood for Halloween. So just keep that in the back of your mind, uh, like next October. But like I said, I don't think it's practical for an indie dev. Um, maybe you could do like a play on it, like do a sort of cinematic style game with like text only and maybe pixel art and tell like a movie story with pixel art and pop-up text. But yeah, as for making like Until Dawn, but the indie version, um, I just think it would be really hard. But if you could pull it off, it'd be really cool. So that's why it's in the uh, neutral category. Next topic is crunch. And this is going to be a controversial take from me. Uh, but if you, I'll give you some context so you know a little bit about my background. I think crunch is buffed, actually. And before, <laughs> before uh, the pitchforks come out, know that I mean it buffed for like my personal work style in every project I've ever had. It is definitely debuffed. If you're managing other people um, and like your job is to keep things on track and they went off track and then you try to crunch them to still get everything done on time, uh, that in that case is very debuffed. But for me personally, I really only have ever managed myself. And so for me, I kind of just see crunch as inevitable for my projects. And really, when I have a deadline and I'm racing to get something done, I actually like weirdly work most efficiently when I have a deadline. Like a game jam is a perfect example. That basically is crunching an entire game. But it's where I feel like I am in the zone, like in the flow state the most. When I'm kind of working on my long-term project with long-term goals, I don't get in that flow state, that like extremely productive state, as much as I'd like to. But when I have a really short deadline or I'm really coming up on an important deadline, I just really get in the zone. And I guess I've been a lifelong procrastinator, so <laughs> maybe that's just my work habits. But for me personally... I just know that my projects are going to have crunch time in it. That's just how it is for me. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. So yeah, in that specific context, I think crunch is buffed. All right, last one. This one comes from the patron, Wicked Skylar. And Skylar presents basically the idea for games with a cash buy-in. That is games that require like real money to play around or something like that. Maybe something kind of like uh, poker where you have to have a buy-in. Like imagine Fortnite costs $5 a round, but the winner, you know, maybe takes home the pot or something like that. I think this idea is buffed, but you're going to have to be very careful about how you do it. Basically, what introducing a cash buy-in does is it raises the stakes which amplifies, in my mind, the good and the bad of the game. Of course, let's just, you know, for the sake of the argument and the thought experiment, let's just pretend like all the legal <laughs> and, you know, ethical stuff would be fine. We can maybe call that the uh, EA model. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, a cash buy-in, like I said, raises the stakes which I think is really, really cool for competitive games. We've definitely seen in the last 10 years or so the increase in popularity 
of esports and competitive style games, I know a ton of people who would put like $5 on a Valorant match. And uh, yeah, in the competitive space, I think it would be a really, really cool idea. Now, like I said, it's going to amplify everything. So all the negative stuff, like if you, if your team lost because of a bug or a glitch or something, like one, you're definitely going to get <laughs> some bad reviews and some upset customers. But two, I'm sure there's a, you know, I said we'd ignore this, but there's probably like a legal argument to that, especially if someone put down like a thousand bucks and then lost to like bad net code or something that would be, you know, that would be bad. So I think it's really risky, and that's probably why not very many companies have tried it. But I will say the best example I've ever seen of this was not for real money. It was for in-game currency. And that was in, I think it was Call of Duty Black Ops, the first Black Ops, where you would earn currency by just playing the game, and then you would use that currency to do your like progressions and your unlocks and all that but they had a really cool system where you could play games where you could put a wager on the game so you could bet all of your progression points and if you played call of duty in that era (laughs) kind of the xbox 360 uh lobbies you know the amount of trash talk and stuff that kind of went on in those lobbies and yeah it was really cool to like mix that trash talk with like you know putting your money where your mouth was and, I don't know, settling an argument with sticks and stones with all of your progression points on the line. It's just a really cool idea, and it was one of those situations where it raised the stakes. And I think that was a much safer way to do it than doing real money. So, yeah, as I've kind of talked this one out and messed with the idea in my head, I'm going to say that the idea of a cash buy-in for games is buffed with the caveat that, you know, you could figure out all the legal and kind of ethical stuff, and really, that's a really tough problem. So, yeah, my argument basically comes down to it's good if you ignore all the bad stuff about it. So maybe it's buffed, maybe it's debuffed when you think of the challenges with it, but either way, I think it's a really interesting idea. And, uh, yeah, thanks to Wicked Skylar for proposing that. That's going to do it for Buff Debuff. If you have any topics, uh, really about anything that you want to hear about on the show, jump on over to the Discord server and post them in the Buff Debuff channel. With that, let's jump over to the second segment of the show, which is the one key thought. Today's special guest giving their one key thought is Sam Seltzer Johnston. Sam is a freelance game developer and consultant and is currently working on ExoCore. Sam has a broad skill set, but has specialized in game engine development, gameplay programming, and software portability. The game he's currently working on, ExoCore, is a fast-paced, hard sci-fi multiplayer arena shooter where players engage their enemies at extreme ranges using their jetpacks, futuristic weaponry, an array of exosuit abilities. I actually personally went out and purchased ExoCore and played some uh, rounds of Capture the Flag, and yeah, I thought it was super fun. I think it brings like a really high skill ceiling, but you don't have to have that really high skill level to like enjoy the game. Like, you know those games where the skill ceiling's so high as a new person, it's kind of like not fun, you kind of just get crushed. 
an exocord just because the movement because you're flying around in a in an exosuit and like low gravity it's just really really fun and uh the weapons are satisfying and it's just fun to play and you don't have to be good so yeah i would uh encourage you to go check it out sam's key thought today i thought was really really interesting and he's got a lot of good points. I, I didn't guide him really in any direction. I just let him kind of make a segment about whatever he wanted. And I think serendipitously, yeah, that's the right word, serendipitously, he picked a topic that is perfect for being our first guest. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sam. Hi, my name is Sam Selter Johnston. I am the engineer on ExoCore, E-X-O-C-O-R-P-S. My one key thought is that there is no single right or wrong way of doing anything. That nothing is good or bad in a vacuum. And in particular, this applies to taking advice. But it also applies to things like how you go about developing your game. And I'm going to give a couple examples of how broadly applicable this concept is because I feel like in my career, not understanding this has hindered me. I have noticed that many beginners and intermediate developers have a tendency to see some kind of advice or someone who uh, asserts that something is a best practice, and they latch onto that idea. And they do so without realizing that there are nuances to how applicable it is in their particular situation. Uh, the, the basic idea here is that the answer is always, it depends. And some things that uh, get repeated often enough will tend to get cemented into people's brains as uh, you know, an absolute truth. Some examples of this might be how much topology matters on a 3D model Uh, whether uh, the compiler will automatically optimize for you when you're writing uh, code. Uh, This also applies to networking, like whether you're introverted or extroverted, whether you're in-person or online. It uh, applies to navigating a career in particular, uh, how to build a portfolio, whether to go to conferences, what kind of education you need, how much experience to have. All of these things, uh, there's, uh, there's no one single prescribed way to go about doing it. Every year, I see dozens of presentations that are all essentially the same content. It is some developer with some degree of experience rattling off a bunch of tips and tricks to break into the industry. And among those, we usually hear things like make lots of small games and do lots of game jams. Making small things will teach you how to scope things, it'll get you in the habit of finishing things, it will give you potential portfolio material, game jams will help you build team experience, and, you know, those are not bad advice, like, those aren't bad tips. It's just that uh, those are not the only ways to go about accomplishing those things. It's okay to just make bits and pieces of things, or even show off unfinished stuff. Showing that I could do a niche thing well was part of what got me my first contract. Uh, If you look at my portfolio, it's kind of sparse. It's got some old game mods that I made. It shows some, like, 
bits and pieces of systems that I added to games that never got finished. I show off like some contributions to a game engine. Like it's like a lot of bits and pieces. I, I think I might have had like a tool or two on there that I made. None of them are like things that someone could go and download and like try out necessarily, but it was it's enough to show that I know what I'm talking about and that I have some experience. You don't have to finish lots and lots of small games in order to break into the industry or be a quote-unquote good developer. It's, you know, it's okay to be more of a specialist. It, it, it's okay to have an area that you want to focus on and just focus on that. And I think that these sorts of tips put a lot of pressure on people to like feel that they have to be everything or that they have to be capable of being everything. It sort of perpetuates the myth of the lone developer. Like it it's not it's not real in the like sort of romanticized way we like to think of it. One story in Exocore's development is about how we chose a design solution to a performance problem, particularly with respect to projectiles. You have a gun that has multiple firing modes, and some of those firing modes spew lots of projectiles, particularly the minigun. This has performance implications on rendering, processing power, and network performance. So because those are not always solvable problems, we decided to go with a design solution because the time it takes to change the design to accommodate these performance limitations is more efficient in terms of time spent than re-architecting things to speed things up and increase our performance budget. What we ended up doing is making the cost of firing the minigun more expensive and also made it so that the accuracy of it is reduced over time. What this does is incentivizes players to fire in bursts, which means that projectiles don't accumulate, which means we don't end up with those performance issues. So we're talking the difference between, like, minutes to a couple hours versus potentially weeks of effort optimizing things. I talked to a few artists before this to get their perspective, and uh, one of the things that jumped to their minds was how much topology matters, and this is uh, very specific to 3D art. I should also clarify that when we're talking about topology here, what we're really talking about is quote-unquote clean, efficient topology. But, you know, it's another case where it depends, and there are uh, some people who will say topology is very important, and some people will say that it doesn't matter. And the answer is really somewhere in between. It's not unimportant, but it's also not the most important thing. But, you know, there, there are other considerations, like how much complexity does it add to your workflow? It also can depend on what kind of lighting you're using. Uh, sometimes we still use vertex lighting, and if your topology is funky, then it's going to make the lighting look kind of weird. It also makes a difference when you are blending materials. 
So if you have to like blend between sand and rock on a uh, on a surface in your world, if the topology is weird, it's going to be reflected in that blending. The importance of it also could depend on how often a player is going to look at it and how much focus is put on it. You know, let's say there is an objective good here. The relative importance of that is going to really depend on the asset itself. Like a, a bucket that's in the corner in the background of a scene, probably less important than the characters who are in the foreground. And if that bucket is only ever used in the background of scenes, then, you know, it maybe doesn't matter as much. But, you know, if you're working on a portfolio piece and uh, a job application requires you to show your topology, then that changes things. Now you probably want to put your best foot forward. On the other hand, some artists will say never show your topology because it's just a thing that leaves room for people to nitpick you on. Whereas some people will say definitely show it because it could increase your chances of getting a job. There really isn't a single right answer here. Different people have different advice because they have different experiences with these things. In ExoCore, we actually do use vertex lighting for certain assets, and it's very context-specific. Like, how is this model going to be lit? Is it in the foreground or in the background? How often is the player going to see it? Is it going to get animated? You know, like, what, what kind of materials are going to go on it? Do the materials need to blend with other materials? There, there's many nuances to this that can determine how you author assets. Programmers also have these sorts of disagreements, like uh, some people are big advocates for data-oriented design and some people are very into object-oriented programming. Is one of them better? Not really. I mean, they're both good for different things. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they are pretty different and typically you're going to choose one over the other. This is another one of those cases where it depends. If you are making a short narrative game, then, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't matter that much. Like, if you're just going to have a few characters in each scene and there's not a lot of stuff moving around, then, you know, go with object-oriented if it's convenient for you, you know? If it's going to save you time and effort, then totally go with that. But, you know, if you're making a... MMO or something that has thousands of things moving around on the screen at once and you've got uh, a lot of systems churning and a lot of parallelization needs to happen, um, then, you know, you probably want to go with something more data-oriented like, uh, like an ECS architecture. There are lots of other areas where programmers disagree about things that uh, don't really have a universal right answer. One of those things might be how much to document your code. Uh, there, There is certainly a balance to be struck with how many comments you write in your code. Sometimes you can end up writing too much and sometimes you can end up writing too little. Some people are very uh, into this idea of self-documenting code and while that is a really nice thing to aim for, I have also seen it hilariously backfire. 
and it's uh you know i i don't think that it is appropriate or really good in a vacuum but at the same time you know you you don't want to comment every single line and explain every single line of your code that's obviously too much so you know finding that in-between zone can be kind of nuanced it it can be uh, there isn't like a a single right way to do it you'll see people on stack overflow say things like don't try to optimize your code yourself the compiler will just take care of it for you code doesn't just magically get optimized it you have to write it in a certain way for the compiler to auto-optimize things. And even if you do that, there are still going to be cases where people need to manually optimize things. This is usually more the engine developer's job, and I do some of that as well. If you're a gameplay programmer, it's not like it's unimportant to understand these things, but it might be less important. Again, this is a context matters sort of thing. Should you write unit tests for your game? You know, if you're making Factorio, maybe. <laughs> like, if you've got a game with high determinism, absolutely, that seems like a pretty good idea because your gameplay is all about things working the same way all the time. Many games benefit from non-determinism, and in those cases, it is extremely time-consuming to write automated tests. Many people will talk about career navigation as if their advice and their story and experience will apply to you and this is such a common fallacy that it has a name it's called survivorship bias it's this notion that because something worked for one person it can work for you as well it it's the idea that someone survived a situation or succeeded at something and they have attributed it to some arbitrary list of actions or decisions and from that they extrapolate it to applying to people other than themselves and sometimes people will even give the disclaimer your mileage may vary but they often sort of gloss over what that means like, when you hear your mileage may vary, really internalize that idea because there are often lots of details and preconditions that get left out of these stories. The reality is a lot of career development, especially in highly competitive industries, is it's luck. Uh, it's about getting more roles. Like, if you think about it as roles on a die... If you want to improve your chances of success, you need to give yourself more chances. But it doesn't only have to do with luck. That's just one component of it. I'm going to take a moment to share a couple parts of my story, not because I think it will help anyone listening as like a template, but more to illustrate how it doesn't apply to everyone, which is sort of the opposite of what we usually see. So first, a story of how someone who didn't believe in me and gave me some advice that seemed good on the surface turned out to be not great advice. One year when I was at the Game Developers Conference, I was carpooling with a hiring manager somewhere, and we got onto the topic of me looking for a job, 
and they said, well, do you have your resume? And did you go to the career center? And I said, no, I didn't do that this year. I decided I would focus more on networking. And they said, wow, you must not be taking your career very seriously. And I was kind of offended when they said that because I felt like I was taking it more seriously that year. But to understand why I thought that, it requires a little more context. The previous year I attended GDC, I visited the Career Center, I brought a resume, I brought my portfolio, I went to pretty much every booth, and I didn't get a single interview out of it. And while someone might be thinking, you just didn't do it enough times, this is after years of going to career centers and noticing a pattern that I did not get many opportunities through them. What I had also observed is that most of the time, most of the opportunities that I received were from people who were not recruiters. They were like normal professionals who had a job at a company and were willing to pass my resume along to someone who would read it. So when I noticed that strategy worked more for me, I decided, you know what, going to this career center is a waste of my time. The hours that I spend there are hours that I could have spent mingling with other professionals and getting more potential connections. And so the next year I came back to GDC, I didn't go to the career center, I made a lot of great connections, and the year after that, I think, was the year that I got my first contract working in the industry. And it was because I had met someone two years prior to that, and for at least two years in a row, I reconvened with the same person and kept tabs on their project. And when I saw an opening for a chance to plug myself, they, they showed, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. And I looked at it and said, hey, I have this niche thing on my portfolio that demonstrates I know a thing or two about that problem that you're experiencing, and you should hire me. And after a little bit of pestering for a couple months after that, they finally gave me a contract, and I, I had my in. Now here's where we get to the part where this advice doesn't apply to people. For starters, I was at GDC at all. GDC is super expensive and inaccessible to many people. So right off the bat, if you can't figure out a way to get there, my advice doesn't exactly apply to you. There might be bits and pieces that can be uh, reused in a different context, but applied literally, it's not going to work the same way. So let's look at more of the preconditions. In order to get to GDC, I needed a job that would pay me enough money for me to have income that I could save to attend the conference. It also required me to have some vacation time so that I could attend. This comes down to resources. So in order to get this job in the first place, it required me to have a computer science degree. That's also not accessible to everyone. It meant that I needed to acquire loans in order to attend, and I am still deeply in debt from that. There are certain sacrifices that came along with doing this. I dedicated a lot of my disposable income towards saving for doing career building things like attending conferences. 
it also meant that I was spending a lot of my free time doing portfolio building and career building things rather than taking actual vacations. This also meant foregoing time that people usually use to make friends and deepen relationships. And, you know, not doing that isn't always an option for everyone. And that impacted my mental health in ways that were not super positive. So this really boiled down to having resources, making some sacrifices, and being persistent, and eventually getting lucky by being persistent. I want to really make it clear that this does not mean that other people have to make lots of personal and financial sacrifices or go to GDC or like not spend time with their friends or spend all of their free time and vacation doing career building. Like you don't have to do all of that. That's what I did. Not everyone went that route. And some of that could depend on who you are. It could depend on like what type of portfolio you're trying to build it could depend on a lot of things or maybe you're like just gonna have to do it over a longer period of time and that's okay too uh you know i it definitely didn't happen for me overnight you know <laughs> it it took me uh years of sort of uh pounding away at this and it might not take that amount of time for everyone like if you've got a family that you take care of and uh that takes up a lot of your time you know, like, definitely, I think that's great to prioritize that, like, know what is important in your life and everything, and it doesn't mean that you can't make it into the industry as well. Like, if that's what you want to do with your life and you're really sure about that, there is a path for you, but it is not going to look like what I did. Uh, it, it will take knowing yourself and thinking critically about what you can and can't do and forging your own path based on that. And this sort of drives home the fact that everyone's going to have a different win condition, right? Like, you don't have to go to an in-person conference to network. That was what I chose to do, because I felt like that's where I would find more success. But, you know, now a lot of communities have moved online. The lesson here being that the hiring manager who told me that I should be doing the career center was wrong because that was just not an area I was strong in. I chose to play to my strengths and that worked better for me. The other lesson is that this story does not apply to many people and in order for any of that advice to work you need to make some pretty big modifications to it. So I guess some main points. Everything depends. Everything has nuance. Decisions are always subject to nuance. Nothing is universally good or bad. There's no one right or best way of developing, and it's okay to forge your own path. And while that can be a little intimidating at first, it's also quite liberating. My name is Sam Seltzer Johnston. I am a freelance independent game developer. If you want to get in touch with me, there are many ways to do it. Just search my name. There is only one of me in the world, I guarantee it, and I am happy to answer questions or talk about what I'm working on or hear what you're working on. Thank you for listening.
big thanks to Sam for uh, taking some time to come and record a key thought for our community. We're still in the experimenting stage of these bonus episodes, but I really like having these guest speakers on, as you can see. Um, Sometimes it's really helpful to have someone with a different perspective. And uh, yeah, like I said, Sam picked the perfect topic for the first special guest segment. If you want to support Sam, I would really encourage you to go follow him on Twitter um, and buy his game he's working on called ExoCore. It's out now on Steam. I'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. If you do get it, let me know. Let's get some uh, full lobbies going on and do some Capture the Flag. If you want to get a hold of me, I am on Twitter at underscore Zachavelli underscore. And I'm active pretty much every day in the community Discord. Uh, I'll leave the open invite link in the show notes. And with that, I will bid you farewell, and I'll see you guys next time.